Good morning, North Hills. I think I said this the last time I had the opportunity to preach, and I'll probably say something similar each time I'm given this opportunity. It is indeed a privilege to stand before you. It's, a, it's an overwhelming honor to stand before the people of God with the Word of God and call our attention to the truth of God. Those of you who have uh, been with us on an ongoing basis kind of know where we are in our preaching series. We're between books of the Bible, and we've entered into a time of the year where it just makes sense um, for us to cover some various topics and to, to depart from our normal systematic verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture. So uh, following our conclusion of the book of Jude, Evan led us through a couple of sermons and a couple of uh, concepts regarding the, the Reformation. We celebrated that uh, Reformation Sunday uh, this, past, uh, this past weekend, and uh, we had two sermons leading up to that, that that dealt with both the formal principle of the Reformation, which is Scripture alone, and the dynamic principle of the Reformation, which is the fact that we are saved by faith alone. And uh, this, this week we enter into a, a sort of a four-sermon time of Proverbs and Psalms, and it's my responsibility today to open to you the Word of God and look to the Proverbs for a uh, for a sermon this morning. I'd like to ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bible to Proverbs 31. And uh, this is a, a, a passage or, or a chapter that is normally associated with instruction for women. Uh, verses 10 through 31 indeed describe the ultimate godly woman. And I'm sure we've all heard sermons preached on that before. In fact, there's a very popular and well-marketed women's ministry by the title Proverbs 31 Ministries. I'm sure we're all familiar with that. But the benefits of this chapter are not limited to women. And today I'd like to call our attention to the first nine verses as we look at some instruction from a godly mother to her son, King Lemuel. The fact of the matter is, regarding King Lemuel, we really have no idea who this person was. Uh, We see uh, several different uh, interpretations or uh, ideas about who King Lemuel might have been, but the, the scripture itself simply does not give us any concrete information. Based on various translation and punctuation issues, it is possible that King Lemuel was, in fact, an actual king related to the descendants of Mesa, who was one of Ishmael's sons, uh, the, the, the son of Abraham, his sons, uh, were, are listed in Scripture, and we, we think that there's a possible connection there, although this is not supported directly in Scripture, so it's, it's merely speculation. The literal uh, meaning of the name Lemuel is unto God, as in devoted to God or uh, dedicated to God. And this itself might lend some thought, some insight into his identity. Some scholars even go so far as to suggest that the name Lemuel is, is basically a pseudonym by which Solomon introduces instruction from his mother, Bathsheba. Again, all of this is speculation. There, there's no way for us to know, but I just thought I'd share with you some of the ideas that are out there regarding the identity of this, uh, of this Lemuel. Uh, in, in all likelihood, maybe, or there, there's a distinct possibility that Lemuel is, is simply a symbolic king used by Solomon to teach some principles of motherly wisdom. In, in, in a sense, he could be viewed as this ideal king who is devoted to God and, and hears advice from his mother and acts with prudence. Regardless of our inability to know who Lemuel is, I think it's pretty clear to most of us the benefit and the value of a godly mother's counsel and a godly mother's wisdom. We see throughout church history different men who have been greatly impacted 
by the, by the counsel and the wise instruction of their mothers. Uh, James Hudson Taylor, for example, the great missionary to China, often spoke of his mother's commitment to praying for his conversion. The, the person that I would call and many would call the most influential theologian in all of church history was Augustine of Hippo. And he often spoke of his mother saying, uh, my mother placed great hope in God and she was in greater labor to ensure my salvation than she had been at my birth. So uh, Augustine's mother, Monica, is, is well documented to have labored in prayer for him year after year after year until his conversion. Even from the pages of sacred scripture, we learn how Timothy's mother, Lois, and grandmother, Eunice, poured into Timothy from childhood a knowledge of the scripture that the apostle Paul would go on to describe in his letter to Timothy as the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ. And undoubtedly, we could think of many more examples of godly mothers. Maybe our own mothers, um, for, for many of us, uh, undoubtedly played a, a crucial role in, in instructing us in wisdom and bringing us to the knowledge of salvation. The value of wisdom passed on from a godly mother simply cannot be overstated. And this is the example that we see in Proverbs chapter 31 this morning. Let's read together um, or ask you that you follow along as we read the first nine chapters of Proverbs 31, the wise and godly counsel of Lemuel's mother. Beginning in verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him, what, O my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows, do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Let's pray this morning before we begin the exposition of this passage. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time dedicated in our worship service to pour over your scriptures, to mine them for, for truth, to recognize and, and, and to honor you as the author of all truth this morning, God. We ask you to give us clarity of thought, presence of mind, as we consider your word, Lord, speak to us, change us by the power of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the words of King Lemuel, the, the, the words of the, of the king that were granted to him by his mother, this text records this motherly advice given to a man of nobility, King Lemuel. But there's really no reason to think that the implications of this passage need to be limited to royalty or nobility. I'd like to say that up front. I think that we can very accurately and very appropriately apply this wisdom broadly um, to, to all men, to any, to any man who would seek to honor God in his life. So even though all men are not kings, and even though we live in a different political and social climate than King Lemuel, it is, it is still very much uh, within the realm of reality that men are to lead in their families. They're given a sphere of influence within the church, and it's important that we take the principles that we find in this passage and apply it to the, to the, uh, the command of God that we lead sacrificially, 
that we provide and protect for those who cannot provide and protect for themselves. The instruction that we see offered by King Lemuel's mother then should be heeded by everyone. And while we will make specific applications today to men, particularly to young men, uh, I don't want the ladies to think that you can just check out. This is still very illustrative um, for, for the, the ladies in our congregation as well. This is not a, um, a, a men's only message. If it were, I would dismiss you all to go early to lunch, um, or, or we would cover this in a men's group. That, that's, that's not the point of this, but uh, the implications that we're drawing from this passage are very specifically targeted toward men, and I want us to see that this morning. In verse 2, we see this threefold exclamation, what, O my son? And some of you who are probably reading from the ESV might, might read this translation of that passage, what are you doing, my son? Right? Some of you probably see that. Well, as, as a father of twin six-year-old boys, that resonates with me. What are you doing, my son? In fact, I quote this scripture multiple times a week, multiple times a day. Um, and and that, that's maybe humorous to think about, but, but when, you, when you allow that to sort of speak to us, uh, I think what we see from Lemuel's mother is that she is calling her son to, a, to an instructive position. She's calling his attention. She's wanting his, uh, his, 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 his mental capacities to be focused on this very, very clear instruction that she's given. So just in the same way that I might say, Isaac, what are you doing? Silas, what are you doing? I want you to envision Lemuel's mother as calling his attention to his own actions and then calling him to a more godly action based on the principles that she lays forth here. Um, even, uh, you know, as, as, we, as we look at the way this, this phrase plays out, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? She's appealing in this case to the intimate, tight, close relationship that is found between a mother and her child. We see this, um, th- this relationship utilized by the prophet Isaiah as he, uh, speaking for God, uh, identifies this relationship between a mother and a child as, as illustrative of God's relationship with his chosen people. Isaiah 49, 15, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? So this is in response to Israel's feeling rejected by God, and they were in some sense uh, under the wrath of God and the punishment of God. But God is assuring that just as a woman will not forget the child of her womb, he will not forget his chosen people. So even God uses this relationship as a well-known expression of endearment, of affection, of love. And that's that's the idea that Lemuel's mother is playing to here. His mother also refers to him as the son of her vows. And, of course, this reminds us immediately of Hannah's promise to dedicate Samuel to the Lord should she be granted a son. And, and this could also be connected to the, the meaning of the name Lemuel, unto God, devoted to God, we could say. So in setting up her comments to Lemuel in this way, she is calling him to a change, of course, a change of action that he might walk godly based on the three points of instruction that she's going to uh, instill in him today. So the first point that, that we see from Lemuel's mother to King Lemuel is in verse 3. Do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. In this first instruction to Lemuel, um, she, she very specifically commands him not to grant his strength to women. And that begs the question, what, what does that look like for a man to give his strength to women? 
And I think the obvious interpretation to this is that that is a, a reference quite directly to uh, the sin of immorality. While the, the, the relationship between the man and the woman is a beautiful thing, and we'll see that later in Scripture, uh, there's also no question that the pursuit of those relationships by men has yielded any number of immoral acts, immoral behaviors. We can think of, of numerous modern examples today of uh, powerful politicians, influential celebrities, and unfortunately even high-profile pastors who have met their demise because they were giving their strength, they were applying their energies and their minds and their motives to the pursuit of immoral relationships with the opposite sex. When we look to Scripture, we see examples such as Samson. And anytime I say Samson, everyone thinks Delilah, Samson and Delilah, right? Well, before Samson even met Delilah, he had demonstrated already a pattern of this immoral behavior with the opposite sex that King Lemuel's mother would have advised against. Um, before we see Samuel going into Delilah, we also see Samson, uh, sorry, I said Samuel, Samson, we see Samson going into prostitutes. We see Samson demanding of his father that he secure for him a wife of the Philistines, which was prohibited to him. And then in his failures with Delilah, presumably also a Philistine, we see that his strength was very literally given to or handed over to a woman. Also, we look at the example of Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Okay, my public school math, if it holds up, that leads me to the conclusion that he had 1,000 women who he was seeking to engage in some type of intimate relationship with. Okay, let me say this as categorically as I possibly can. There is nothing in, Bible, in the Bible that would lead us to think that that was appropriate. God's plan for marriage has always been one man, one woman united permanently. Okay, so it's, it's important as we, as we read the Old Testament that we not allow the descriptive passages, which oftentimes deal with sin and failure, to be interpreted as prescriptive patterns for us. Okay, there's a difference in the way we interpret that. And this, this interpretation uh, we see of Solomon is clear that he was a man in sin. He was, he was a man in grave sin, in grave error. Now, I want us to compare these illicit, sinful applications of sensuality that we see in people like Samuel, uh, sorry, people like Samson, people like Solomon, too many S's for me today. Um, uh, compare the, the, the immoral aspects of those behaviors and interactions with the original intention of God for matrimony. We're going to go to a lot of scripture today. I'm going to, I'm going to read a lot of scripture to you very briefly and very quickly, but we're also going to turn to a couple. And this is one that I'd like for you to turn to. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 18 as we look at the, the perfect uh, expression of the man-woman relationship as God ordained it in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to all birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So consider for just a moment the beautiful picture of intimacy intended for the man and wife relationship. Imagine, if you will, the joy of Adam upon recognizing his helpmate. This is one who was made from the same stuff as himself, actually taken from him. The perfect counterpart to Adam, if you will. The perfect assistant. The perfect, um, perfect complement to Adam in every way. That was the intention of, of the man and woman coming together in one flesh. And now contrast that with the vile pursuits of sensuality that Lemuel's mother is warning him against. Okay? Solomon, although he suffered uh, greatly because of his inability to maintain purity and his inability to adapt to the ideal of God's pattern for marriage, he still presents us with great warnings throughout the book of Proverbs. Okay, if we look to Proverbs chapter 5, go ahead and turn there with me as well. Proverbs chapter 5. We see one of many very strong warnings from Solomon regarding this issue of adultery and immorality entering into the marriage relationship. Proverbs 5, beginning in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. Then again in chapter 7 of Proverbs, beginning in verse 24, Solomon warns once more, And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. That's the ways of the adulteress. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. And if we think this is only a pattern in the Old Testament, we can look to the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Thessalonians, where he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles or like the unbelievers who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. We see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament echoes of Lemuel's mother's warning to not give one's strength, one's attention, one's efforts, one's mind to the pursuit of illicit uh, sexual behavior. One other example, one final example, if you will, of, of this type of uh, behavior and, and the, the havoc that it wrecks upon kings. Uh, what the, maybe the, the most famous example that, that we could think of would be King David with Bathsheba. In this example, let us examine the fact that David's initial sin in this affair was not sexual. 
It was in his neglect of the duties to which he was called. I want to read to you from 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in the first verse. I want us to take in this picture that Scripture is giving us, the context that they're giving us of this situation. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We read, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, David's the king, but rather than going out in the spring at the time when kings go out to war, David is hanging around the palace and gawking at Bathsheba. Okay, so he set himself up in a position where it was a pretty short ride from his neglect of his duties down to adultery and eventually murder as he attempted to cover his sin. Utter ruin for King David, the most powerful man on the planet, a man after God's own heart. How much more if this type of focus and this type of life's uh, ambition toward uh, sensuality, if that type of thing results in the wreckage and the ruin of a man after God's own heart, how much more should we heed the advice of Lemuel's mother? As she tells us, do not give your strength to women. Point number two, we see in verses four through seven of Proverbs 31 that a lifestyle defined by the consumption of wine and alcohol is not for a man devoted to God. It's simply not. As we reread these verses, verse four, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Now, the first thing that I have to say about this passage is that it is neither a blanket prohibition of alcohol nor an endorsement of drunkenness. Both of these errors, when this passage is wrongly interpreted, can be arrived at. Okay, this is not a prohibition of alcohol. Wine, in fact, is described in many places in Scripture as a blessing from God, resulting, in some cases, from obedience. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So in this case, wine is, is given as an illustration of blessing of God on the basis of obedience to his, uh, to his commands. Also, uh, speaking in favor of the use of alcohol, there are legitimate medicinal uses of, of wine. For example, we, we all remember the passage in 1 Timothy where Paul urges Timothy to go ahead and take a little wine for the sake of his stomach, to not drink water alone, but to use wine for its medicinal properties and purposes. So this passage that we read in Proverbs uh, 31 here can't be read as a prohibition of alcohol in every situation. However, that being said, the opposite side of the coin is very, very important to analyze. The warnings against drunkenness are numerous in Scripture. Look with me, if you will, to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, beginning in verse, 20, uh, verse 29. We read there, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? The answer to all those questions, those who tarry long after wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. 
In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Okay, this is one of the saddest depictions of someone whose life is given over to the pursuit of alcohol and intoxicating beverage. I know that around our house, um, the Andy Griffith Show is the most watched television program that we have. We, we have a, a beautiful widescreen uh, 4K television so that we can watch reruns from 1963. And, and our, our favorite thing to watch, and we, we have these, my, my kids actually recite the episodes of the Andy Griffith Show along with the characters. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing the, the way they've very quickly um, sort of ingrained the principles of Andy Griffith. One thing that is, that is common on the Andy Griffith Show is that uh, the alcoholism of Otis Campbell, the town drunk, is, is kind of a joke. It's kind of a ha-ha matter. It's, it's funny. And there is certainly some humor in the way that is presented. But when we take the instruction of Lemuel's mother seriously and we cross-reference it with the warnings presented in Scripture by Solomon and in other places as well, we see that a life given over to the pursuit of alcohol is not something that really is very humorous at all. It's devastating. The, the, the numbers of families that have been ravaged by this sin, the number of marriages that have been demolished by this sin, uh, the relationships that have been compromised or, or, or completely severed, by the sin of alcoholism is not something that we should take, I think, a great deal of humor from. And we need to take a very sober, uh, not to make a pun, but a very sober look at what it means to have a life that is devoted to alcohol. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians offers an even stronger admonition for those who would take alcohol. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10 reads, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, nor drunkards. Drunkards is included within this list of those who, if their lives are committed to these things, simply will not inherit the kingdom of God. Also within the requirements that we are given in the New Testament for elders and deacons, men who would, who would aspire to those offices, we are told that they are not to be given to much wine. Uh, a lifestyle of, of drunkenness is not conducive to one who would oversee the house of God. Even for women, ladies, I told you I'm speaking primarily to men today, but, but I'd like to address this to you. Even for women who would serve as models of godliness to younger women, we see a similar admonition, Titus 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. It doesn't take much of a, of a presence on Facebook, just a simple perusal, to see that there is, uh, and, and maybe I'm overstating this. If I am, forgive me. But, but there, there is this idea that I see prevalent in just a general perusal of Facebook of mothers who are championing wine as their uh, apothecary for child duty. In other words, my children are so wild and crazy, I need to get together with my girlfriends and have a glass of wine. Well, let, let, me, let me just say, while, while there might be some humor in that, there, there may be something to, to laugh at there, um, in, in reality, anytime you find yourself looking at wine as a coping mechanism for your life, 
you have misplaced your priorities. Everything we need in this life for godliness is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And let's not allow any substance to replace that. So just a, just a caution there may not apply to anyone, but, but I, that's just an observation from, the, uh, uh, from this wonderful analytical tool we have in Facebook. Well, believers, one, one, other, one other thought about, about alcohol here, and this didn't start out to be a message on alcohol, but it, it did occupy quite a bit of my study. Believers who do choose to exercise their liberty in Christ and responsibly imbibe alcohol are to do so with a view to the New Testament principle of sensitivity to the weaker brother. This principle is outlined in 1 Corinthians 8. We won't turn there, but let me just summarize that. This text commands us that anything that is within the realm of Christian liberty, in other words, things that the Bible does not prohibit, um, are to be exercised in such a way that does not make our weaker brothers stumble. In the Corinthian context, this would deal with the eating of meats that have been sacrificed to idols. We, saw, uh, we see this in, in a couple different places in Scripture, but particularly here. There were weaker brothers, young Christians, who were struggling with the idea that people could actually eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And Paul's admonition there was, it's certainly within your liberty, within your right, but if, if his right to eat meat sacrificed to idols is going to cause one of his brothers to stumble, he's going to deny himself that right for the greater good of the body of Christ. In our context today, this would include um, grain converted to beer or grapes converted to wine. Those are in themselves, there's nothing wrong with those things. They, they're, they're simple um, expressions of God's bounty and, and his plenty. But our Christian liberty should never be exercised in a way that creates doubt in the heart of a fellow believer. I'll leave you with one final verse regarding the use of alcohol. Isaiah 5, verses 22 and 23 tells us, this is a series of woes. This particular woe tells us, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Now think about that for just a second. Who acquit the guilty for a bribe and drive, deprive the innocent of his right. Scripture is drawing a straight line between the use of alcohol, the indulgence in alcohol, and the other sins that Lemuel's mom is about to prohibit in these next verses of Proverbs. We see a direct connection there between a lifestyle characterized by, uh, by carnality and drunkenness we see a direct connection between that and the inability to judge rightly, the inability to be equitable. Micah 6.8 gives us clear instructions on this. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So obeying these commandments in Micah 6 is nearly impossible in an inebriated state and altogether impossible for one who is given to a lifestyle of indulgence, which is prohibited in the advice of Lemuel's mother in Proverbs 31. Point three, God's strength for men is to be used for God's purposes on earth. The strength that God has granted men is not to be given to women through immorality. It is not to be compromised through the overindulgence of alcohol. This strength is rather to be used in the manifestation of God's perfect justice on earth. Look with me again to Proverbs 31, verse 8. The instruction of Lemuel's mother. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate, 
Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. For this final point, we must consider a topic today that has become a point of great contention in our society and sadly enough, even in the church. And this is the topic of justice. We hear this word again and again, and today we tend to hear this word used with adjectives or modifiers. We've all heard phrases like economic justice, racial justice, environmental justice, climate justice, even social justice. We don't find in Scripture any place where the word justice is used with a modifier or with an adjective, as we do today. We simply see justice as a function of God's perfect holiness and perfect righteousness. We do see passages like Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. It is a delight to God to be just, to be loving, to be steadfast in his love. Also, Isaiah 61, verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. We also see in places where God takes full credit and responsibility for his justice. Isaiah 51, verse 4, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. It is God alone who gets to define what justice is, and because actual justice only comes from God, this is right. Imagine this for a second. What, what do we need in order to have absolute justice? Well, we need to have absolute righteousness, absolute holiness. Who is in possession of those things? I would argue it's only God who is in possession of absolute holiness, absolute righteousness. It is only God then who can bring about absolute true justice. Now, the question that must be asked is, does this mean that we simply throw our hands up in the air and give no thought to the pursuit of justice here on earth? Well, absolutely not. In the words of Paul, I would say, by no means. May it never be. Right? We are to pursue justice, but we are to pursue justice as God defines it. And that is to pursue justice without adjectives. That is, we are to find in Micah 6 the instruction of God for what it means to be just. We are to see passages like Proverbs 31, the words of Lemuel's mother, as an example of what true justice is. We are to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. We are to rise up against injustice. We are to hold the banner of justice high because we are the children of the one who provides all true justice. We pursue justice that is blind to outside influence and bribery. We operate courts that show no partiality. Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. This is the perfect justice according to God. Let me offer one more point regarding justice, and, and I'll do this in a series of questions. In theological terminology, how do we refer to our being pardoned from sin and declared righteous before God? Do we not refer to that as justification? Right? We're made just on the basis of what Christ has done. Well, who is this one who justifies? 
Is it not God alone who justifies by faith alone that he alone grants? Ephesians 8, sorry, Ephesians 2 and verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So for absolute justice to occur, it can only come from the one who is absolutely just and who has demonstrated that justice in the person of Jesus Christ. Imagine, if you will, a complete and total infinite debt of sin. Should not be hard to imagine because that's what each one of us owes to God. We are indebted to him infinitely because the smallest sin we can possibly commit produces and creates an infinite chasm of guilt between us and God. How is there any way that we could ever be made just, be made right in the sight of God? It requires a just and perfect sacrifice. This is why the message of the gospel is Jesus Christ came to this earth, God in flesh, lived a perfect life, qualifying him for a death that would be imputed to those who would have faith and those who would believe. If Christ ever sinned, he would have died for his own sin, but he never sinned. Therefore, his death was not for his sin, but for the sin of others, because he was, in fact, very God. Who can grant such justice? The one who is absolutely holy and absolutely righteous. The one who provides our atonement in the person of Jesus Christ. The one spoken of in Isaiah 42. I'd like to conclude with this, with this passage here as we, as we finish these, these last verses. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Jesus Christ is the only true agent of justice, and apart from faith in his saving work, we are simply scrambling for some semblance of justice, some appearance of justice. So let us reject the, the worldly understanding of justice for the true understanding of justice that comes from God through Christ. This is the warning of Lemuel's mother. So as we conclude in our text this morning, we've associated um, the, the giving of uh, the passage that was typically thought of as giving instruction to women, we've taken that and we've identified within this the sections that really give great instruction to men. We find very profound commands to men, actually. Men are endowed by God with a certain strength that is not to be wasted on carnal pursuits, including fornication and drunkenness. We note that the priority of pleasure should not be the prerogative of power. Think about that for a second, the priority of pleasure. If pleasure is your ultimate concern, that should not be the thing that you waste your strength and your energy on. Our energy and our strength is to be given to the pursuits that God has ordained for us. The strength of God granted to men is to be used in giving a voice to the voiceless and justice to the oppressed. Men, simply put, are to be about the business God has equipped us for and appointed us to. We are to be about the business of the gospel. Let us pray.
Our Father, again, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the truth that it contains, Lord. Within the pages of Scripture is the message of life, the message of eternal life. Lord, we, we thank you, God, for the, the, the sacrifice that we witness in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation provided in him. Lord, we thank you that you have granted unto your people the ability to do your will, that you strengthen us for the task at hand. Lord, we, we pray, as did Augustine, that you would grant what you will and that you, would com- that you would command us as you will and that you would grant to us what is needed to accomplish your purposes. It's your glory that we seek. It's your will that we strive for, God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.